U.S. politicians and the corporate media are starting to talk about a possible nuclear war with Russia. Joe Biden is talking about fighting China over Taiwan. Where is this all headed? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking once again with Eugene Perrier. Eugene is an author and activist and also a journalist with Breakthrough News. Eugene, welcome back. Brian, thank you so much for having me. You're a, a host of The Punch-Out, The Daily Podcast. You're on Breakthrough News. You're also an author of books and articles. You recently had an important article in Liberation News. People can see it at liberationnews.org. The theme of your article or the headline of your article is, is NATO really to blame for the war in Ukraine? You make an interesting point in there because if someone were to say on the mainstream media, look, this is NATO's fault. Uh, The U.S. refused to negotiate. NATO didn't need to expand. This was an unnecessary war. Uh, They'd be treated like they had done some terrible crime. You, You compare it to like Holocaust denialism because that's the tone in the tenor right now. If you say NATO is responsible in the U.S. mainstream media, you're going to be scorched. I think that's 100% correct. I mean, even the New York Times editorial board, who had an extraordinarily tepid editorial, just saying that the U.S. should start to think about, you know, what the end game should be and say to Ukraine that the U.S. can't provide unlimited aid. They were excoriated all across the media, all across social media as some sort of traitors. And, you know, this is the New York Times here. But this is exactly why I wrote this piece, Is NATO to Blame? Because so much of the context of what's happening is around, you know, what happened on February 24th, you know, period. That Russia invaded Ukraine. But the premise of my article, more or less, is that, yes, NATO is to blame. And why? Because NATO and the United States in particular, which is, of course, the driving force of NATO, set the stage in such a way that there was really a binary choice being presented, that either Russia was going to capitulate to the U.S. vision for what Europe should be and how the world should operate, or there was going to be a war. And I lay out across, you know, really starting in the late 1980s up in until our very recent times, how this was very well known, very clear, including to U.S. policymakers who, during the Clinton administration, deliberately obscured the nature of what they were doing to try to trick Russia about the true nature of NATO expansion. But it was never unclear at all that pushing NATO ever eastward, closer and closer to the border, especially the issue of Ukraine, which is very particular in terms of the sensitivity vis-a-vis Russia, that this potentially was going to lead to a binary. Now, of course, I think the hope of the NATO planners was that Russia would just capitulate. And of course, when we're talking about Clinton, we're talking about the 1990s, we're talking about Boris Yeltsin, who was already selling his country for parts, you know, to Americans and Western European corporations. So I think their hope was that Russia would ultimately capitulate, but they knew that if Russia did not capitulate, it could potentially lead to some form of armed conflict. And that's what led us here. And that's why I think NATO's role is critical, because the thing that has to be recognized is that the binary choice that led to the very particular situation on February 24th was something 
something that was driven by NATO and that there was a different possibility and a different future for Europe after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But because of U.S. machinations, that future was was the route not taken. So the binary choice is when Russia lays down red lines in 2021 and says, look, Ukraine's not going to come into NATO. We're not going to let Ukraine become a staging ground for your missiles, advanced nuclear and conventional missiles that have a flight time of a few minutes to our country, missiles we can't really defend against. We're not going to let that happen. And so we insist that you negotiate. And the U.S. said those demands are non-starters. Anthony Blinken said it over and over again. Jake Sullivan, Kurt Campbell, the whole group. They said those are non-starters. And so Russia's left with a choice. Matter of fact, it was worse than that because at that same moment, not only did the U.S. not enter into negotiations, it sends billions of dollars more weapons to Ukraine. So at that point— And it, and it has to be said, not only did they send billions of dollars of weapons, but they stated in September of 2021 that they were going to facilitate the entry of Ukraine into NATO and that the U.S. was— well, first and foremost, the nature of the document where they said this was that they were creating a strategic military partnership that's like a NATO-like situation. And then they say that they're going to do everything possible to help Ukraine join NATO and to address all of the issues that made them ineligible for NATO to join. So, I mean, here they are as directly—this is September of 2021, so not ancient history—saying that their basic goal was to make sure Ukraine ends up in NATO and also, of course, additionally sending more weapons and using their rhetorical you know, instruments, information warfare fair to back the Ukrainian position all the way to the hill. So, yeah. Okay. So perfect. So this is the binary. So the binary, the two choices, the two choices, the binary that Putin is faced with is either capitulate and allow your country to be forever compromised, forever to have missiles on your border, and also to allow Russian speaking people to be pummeled by pro-fascist and fascist forces in the eastern part of the country, which was happening. 14,000 people had died since 2014. You either capitulate and look like a complete weakling or you do something. And what is the something? The something is a military operation because the U.S. could also see that Russia was amassing troops. That was plan B if negotiations didn't work out. So when Russia is given these two choices— Putin decides he's not going to succumb as Yeltsin had. He's going to make the move into Ukraine, which, again, doesn't mean that we're supporting what Russia did. But this was actually, as you're pointing out, the two choices, only two. Negotiations really weren't one of those two choices. And so Russia moves. And then the United States says Russia's the aggressor, as if this whole sequence of events started on February 24th. 2022. There was no September 2021 pledge to enter into a military alliance. There weren't waves of NATO expansion that came before it. Everything starts. History starts on February 24th, 2022. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an extraordinarily good point. And it's an important point because, you know, the way this was presented, certainly by the U.S. government, by President Biden during the State of the Union speech this year, is that there's an illegitimacy to the idea of the quote-unquote Russian red lines. And many people who are criticizing the Russian invasion are saying to give any legitimacy to that, that you're, you know, backing quote-unquote Russian imperialism. But, you know, as Klauswitz said, you know, war is just politics by other means. And the world is not necessarily based on just what you like to see, but the reality. And what we're dealing with here when we're talking about Russia, when we're talking about Ukraine in particular, is a, a long, deep 
both shared and divergent history that go, I mean, in many ways, you could argue that Russia, as we know it today, has Ukrainian origins to some degree. I mean, we're going back to like 900 AD when we're talking about this long, long history, a lot of differences, a lot of unity, a lot of division, a lot of wars, a lot of conflicts over what the borders are, who speaks what language, how it's all set up. And then you put on top of that sort of deep, intertwined cultural, religious history, which in and of itself means that this is going to be something that's very important to Russian people. You put on top of that the fact that Russia has been invaded from the West multiple times through these Western marches in Ukraine and Belarus. So when you have a situation like that, then of course you are going to have a situation where there are going to be interests, there are going to be red lines. And to have a view that somehow in some, you know, I don't know, fantasy world, that there isn't going to be a deep sense inside of Russia and inside of Ukraine about all of these various different problems and that there are going to be various different views about that, but that that means that this Russia-Ukraine relationship is going to be very, very heartfelt, very potent as a political issue uh, is 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 fantastical. To say that there's no, that you just should not recognize that at all is to not actually recognize the way that politics really plays out in the real world and that, you know, the use of war to determine the answers to many of these questions is exactly why the issue of taking account of all of these different realities is critically important to understand. But when you have that history and you have the NATO alliance, a group of people who have expanded massively this military machine on an explicitly anti-Russian basis, driven by the United States that is 100% anti-Russia, and not just anti-Russia politically, but holding out Russia to be almost an alien civilization, then you put all those things together and it does feel like something of an existential threat. And that's why historically we have seen this. I mean, this happened in the 1990s, a discussion between a high-level Russian uh, uh, diplomat and a high-level American diplomat having lunch. And this guy is saying to him, no one in Russia understands what you're doing at all. Even the people who agree with you on Chechnya, i.e. that the Russian war in Chechnya in the 90s was wrong. The people who agree with you on all these other questions around democracy and so on and so forth, they all think what you're doing is crazy and no one understands why the United States is pushing this. And of course, this is something that was said all throughout that the entire Russian political landscape, whether it's the so-called liberals who are pro-Western or whether it's you know the quote-unquote hardliners who were at least perceived to be and portrayed as anti-Western, all of them felt that this was an existential crisis for there to be NATO forces in Ukraine, especially because of this long, deep, contested history and the history of wars that had been brought through in this area that had caused great, great devastation to Russia, to many of the former Soviet republics, including Ukraine. And so whether or not one agrees or disagrees with Russia's reasoning around the issue of Ukraine, whether or not with one agrees or disagrees with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, to act as if that it's somehow that you should just ignore the fact that this history exists that would cause a nation to potentially react in this kind of way is essentially to be for war. Because you're essentially saying that all the potential factors that we'd have to take into account to avoid war should never be taken into account. That means that ultimately you are promoting a partisan position that is one that is ultimately for war. And I think it's important to put it into that context because it's not about whether Russia's right or wrong, whether they should be in Ukraine, whether parts of Ukraine are Russian or whether they're not. It's about whether or not that there's a reality that creates not just these perceptions, but these deep heartfelt feelings about the importance of these issues and, you know, taking one side or another on all those different questions that could potentially lead to war. You know, when I was um, active in organizing as a younger person against the Vietnam War, there were considered to be two camps in the U.S. ruling class. One were called the Hawks and one were called the Doves. And so the Doves were for peace. 
And by peace, I mean not only the end of the war in Vietnam, the doves were for peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union. The doves were against the continued escalation towards nuclear confrontation. The doves were for ending atmospheric tests of nuclear weapons. The doves were a real thing. They were a sector of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, not really progressive. They were capitalists, they were imperialists, but they were the, the imperialist doves, let's say. Henry Kissinger was not amongst them. Henry Kissinger was a hawk. Henry Kissinger was a real super hawk when he became national security advisor in 1969 when Nixon took office. It was the Nixon-Kissinger plan to saturate bomb Vietnam. And they bombed Vietnam to smithereens. They knew they weren't going to win the war, but in order to get peace with honor, as they put it. And in other words, not to be completely embarrassed by the U.S. imperialist defeat in Vietnam. They kept bombing and bombing and bombing, and another million Vietnamese died. So we all hated Henry Kissinger. He was the arch war criminal. Today, Eugene, Henry Kissinger is the dove, <laughs> and he's the only dove. The doves have died. There's the death of the doves. And Henry Kissinger, of course, is not a dove. He would be considered to be real politique, meaning recognizing that the United States can't control everything in the world, that the other major big countries like Russia, like China, have interests that are not going to go away. The U.S. can't just roll over them. So I'm mentioning all of this because Henry Kissinger dared to be almost the lone voice who suggested that there should be a compromise on Ukraine. He said, look, Ukraine should cede part of the territory, meaning the east, around Maripol, Luhansk, Donetsk, you know, the Donbass and Crimea, because they're historically really Russian and Russian speaking. And that would be the basis for peace. And he said, look, you, we have to have peace with Russia. Otherwise, we could end up having nuclear war. And at the same time, he said to the Biden administration, which had just pledged to go to war with China over Taiwan, you can't make Taiwan the centerpiece of U.S.-China relations, meaning support in defense of Taiwan. So I'm saying all this because Henry Kissinger is being scorched and roasted for being the lone voice. And again, it's not about Henry Kissinger never changed. What changed is the American political landscape where somebody like Henry Kissinger, the arch hawk, is now a relative dove. Anyway, I want to play a video clip. It's on CNBC. It's a, a Ukrainian parliamentarian. And just even hear how the show host or the anchor, the reporter is talking to him. He talks to him finally about what about Henry Kissinger saying maybe you should have a compromise. I want to play this clip and then get your comments. And we need to stop him now. And the best way to take Ukraine inside. Before I um, ask you my next two questions, I'm just going to remind you that this is live television, OK, as well, because I know you're going to be very critical as well. Mr. Kissinger has said that to be a diplomatic solution, perhaps Ukraine needs to think about ceding some ground to Russia. Um, your thoughts, sir? I will be... Uh, very polite. I think that Mr. Kissinger uh, still lives in 20th century, 20th century, and we are in 21st century, and we are not going to give up any inch of our territory. All right, Eugene, a couple things there that are interesting. One is he says we have to stop Putin now because he's going to go on and take over Poland and other countries Baltics, in East, yeah. the Baltics. None of that is true. None of that is true. People should just know this is for Russia entirely about Ukraine at the moment. It's not about 
an expansionist drive by Russian imperialism to conquer other parts of Eastern and Central Europe. But then you see the, the reporter says, now be polite, don't use the F word when you're talking about Henry Kissinger because Henry Kissinger dared to suggest that there should be a compromise. I mean, it's really something in US politics that Henry Kissinger, just because he's real politique, not a true dove, because he says Russia has interests that won't go away, uh, being torched. It's amazing. I mean, the idea that somehow Kissinger would be motivated by anything other than a desire to see U.S. imperialism rule the world is, you know, just completely ridiculous, given that that is his entire worldview. And of course, as you said, real politic, a balance of power politic, the concept that imperialism undoubtedly probably could not win if it was an all-out war against all of its particular enemies and you had to find a way to create a balance of power to allow the U.S. to stay on top and to make sure that everyone else stayed down by playing different people off against one another. But of course, when you look at even just the issue of Kissinger's dismissal, you can see at that time in the mid-1970s, and of course he was replaced in something called the Halloween Massacre and all these neocons come in because Ronald Reagan, who was running for president that year and the Republicans was saying we need to have an all-out confrontation against the Soviet Union. And just for a historical placement. So Kissinger, who's the hawk, is actually driven from government with the Halloween massacre. And again, now we're in the mid-1970s. Yes, yes. And Donald Rumsfeld, of course, becomes the Secretary of Defense. George H.W. Bush becomes the CIA, puts in the famous track two evaluation of the Soviet Union, where they came up with like a fake, the CIA said there was no missile gap. So they just went and got some random neocons to say, yes, the Soviet Union has all the missiles in the world. So we have to have this huge nuclear buildup. Carter comes in under the guise of quote unquote human rights to push an offensive with Brzezinski as the mind behind it against the Soviet Union, and then Reagan comes in as president, then the Soviet Union falls. And it's the evolution of this unipolar imperialist mentality that, as you say, used to not be the entirety of the U.S. ruling class and the U.S. bourgeoisie because the insanity of pushing the possibility of a nuclear war, you know, obviously sobered some people up. But of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you have the total collapse of any sort of real opposition from the point of view of U.S. unipolar hegemony and a complete and total change, not a complete and total changeover, but a significant changeover in the consciousness of the ruling class in both major parties that they were just going to plow ahead, come hell or high water. It was said towards the end of the Clinton administration that regardless of what Russia felt, NATO was moving east no matter what. And so the whole idea was that the U.S. can control the entire world, that it can determine what every single country does, that they will bulldoze every other country, and worse comes to worse, we have the most nuclear weapons and the biggest, baddest military, and we'll just obliterate everyone on the planet. And that is the situation where we're in now, where we can see even someone like Henry Kissinger, someone who set up the overthrow of Salvador Allende's government and the murder and the massacre and torture of hundreds of thousands of people, someone who, of course, as you said, supported the genocidal bombing all over Southeast Asia. I mean, one of the most execrable figures in U.S. foreign policy history can now somehow be portrayed as almost some sort of Putin puppet for just suggesting that we probably cannot win an all-out war and for humanity, nuclear war is self-defeating because we will all end up dying, that that somehow is an outlier position, that the New York Times editorial board just saying we shouldn't give unlimited uh, weapons to Zelensky is an outlier position. And, you know, these are not people who are out here supporting peace or who are challenging or questioning U.S. empire. So it does speak, I think, very heavily to the political moment that we are in, that it's clear 
clear that not only there's, I think, a, a faction of people who are now becoming, and we can talk about this, openly for nuclear war, but even the people who aren't openly speaking about it, there's no questioning at all of the unipolar U.S. imperialist drive to control the whole world and all the implications that are around that. And you can see it from different people in Congress. I, I want to quote it exactly. You know, Seth Moulton, who's a representative, he said— on Fox News, and he's on the House Armed Services Committee, we're not just at war to support the Ukrainians. We're fundamentally at war, although somewhat through a proxy with Russia, and it's important that we win. Steny Hoyer, one of the top Democrats, also said we're at war with Russia. Nancy Pelosi, we will keep fighting until victory. It will keep fighting until victory. So you can see that there is a, a very strong sentiment across both major parties that there is nothing more dangerous for the U.S. ruling elite consensus than any country, not that challenges the United States, but that just has the wherewithal to go against the United States and to do its own thing. Russia, Iran, China, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter what kind of political system you have. If the U.S. feels like, well, we can't fully control them, it becomes regime change, it becomes sanctions, it becomes isolation, and ultimately it becomes war. It's a very dangerous situation. And I think it's you know, I was talking to some young folks earlier about this today, and they were like, why is the U.S. getting close to nuclear war? Like, they couldn't even defeat the Taliban. Mm. You know, you couldn't defeat a country in Afghanistan. I mean, the Taliban offered to surrender in September 2000, I mean, November 2001 after their government was dispersed. And, and the U.S., Rumsfeld said, no, 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 we're not going to negotiate with them. 20 years later, the Taliban are the government. Mm -hmm. The U.S. and NATO lost that war. The U.S. couldn't defeat the Iraqi resistance. So now we're talking about war with China and war with Russia and U.S. military doctrine starting in 2018 was reoriented for just that purpose. Now the new priority is major power conflict. And all of the preparations, the prioritization, contingency planning, weapons procurement, budgeting, it's all for major power conflict. And there's no restraint. So Henry Kissinger becomes this lone voice of restraint, and he's denounced as being sort of like the 20th century. This is the 21st century. Well, what does that mean? That means the U.S., and I want to talk about what this really actually means, the 21st century, that the U.S. actually believed after the collapse of the Soviet Union, after the collapse of the socialist camp, that the next hundred years at least, the world would be completely 100% subjugated to U.S. domination. And we're going to talk about how this strategy evolved and where it evolved. And I want to get to that. But I, I want to go back to where we started in the show, Eugene. You sent me the article from the New York Times, Mitt Romney, who was the liberal, meaning the non-Trumpian wing of the Republican Party, he penned an editorial that the New York Times published that said, we have to prepare for Putin's worst weapons. Well, of course, that's nuclear weapons. What does it mean to prepare for them? That means to get ready to fight with them. And then Seth Cropsey has this full-page op-ed in the Wall Street Journal just a few days before Romney, Romney's piece. It says, the U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war. Now, the U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war. When the United States had nuclear weapons and the Soviet Union didn't, the U.S. used nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki as a way to really get the ball rolling for the so-called Cold War. It's telling the Soviets and everybody else, look, not only do we have nuclear weapons, we're going to use them. Why do you know that? Because we just used them on civilians. 200,000 people died. Then the Soviets get nuclear weapons, and they achieve sort of a strategic parity and then there's an equilibrium, and there's a mutually assured destruction. Both sides know that the other will, if the war starts, both sides are basically immolated. 
So as you said, you can't win a nuclear war. But here we're back where the Soviet Union is no more. Russia's much weaker, much weaker than it was during the Soviet era. And the United States and these ideas, these people are thinking like, yeah, we can win a nuclear war. The U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war. Wall Street Journal, why would the Wall Street Journal publish that if they didn't want to give the argument credence? So yeah, it's a few voices at first. Wall Street Journal, Mitt Romney, that chorus will grow because we're living in an environment of unrestrained hubris. The arrogance of power is where the great powers and small powers have always made their worst decisions. No, I think that's a very good point. I mean, you can see, you know, Politico carried an article recently of talking about how Mitch McConnell has a plan working with Joe Biden to crush the so-called isolationist in the Republican Party. And they were mentioning really the 11 Republican senators who voted against the $40 billion. Now, you know, I don't think people should get confused. These people are not, in fact, isolationists, and they're for many imperialist wars, and they're for a genocidal military policy. And most of them really are aggressively focused on China, and that is a big part of their quote-unquote opposition to what's going on in Russia, as they feel it's taken away from the main arena. But be that as it may, I think the Politico article really did speak to something very important, which is that like any expression of any sort, even other imperialistic expression of any of not being in lockstep on the war with Ukraine has to be completely eliminated from the political discourse, which I think is important. You saw the Wall Street Journal editorial board also say a couple of months ago that they should have a no-fly zone and that Biden was weak for not testing Russia. So basically saying we should risk a nuclear war. So no-fly zone means if Russian planes come over Ukraine, the U.S. shoots them, shoot down. them down. So basically saying we should risk a nuclear war and more or less, I mean, I don't want to say call the bluff of the Russians, but essentially call the bluff in that sense and potentially go to a nuclear war. So I think that it really is dangerous because exactly the point we were making, and this is why I started with the Politico piece, just to go back to that, is there is no voice allowed in the political conversation to express restraint. There's no voice that's allowed to express any different sort of policy perspective. Everything is just totally shut out. And again, even someone like Henry Kissinger, who's supposed to be a revered figure, is now being isolated and pushed to the side as the 20th century and all these things because you're not in lockstep. So there's no political conversation that is existing, even though you have about 50% of Americans right now, according to Pew, by the way, who are either extremely or very concerned of a U.S. war with Russia and that this conflict could lead to that because people know what that means and people know nuclear war is, is certainly negative. And so ultimately you have a situation where the small few voices become louder and louder and louder because no one's challenging them. And that actually is one of the most dangerous elements of the whole thing, not just the voices talking about it openly, but the fact that no one can really get on the stage to oppose it. And that even anyone, and, and so anyone in Congress who might oppose it, I don't know if there are any, are obviously staying silent because no one wants to be branded a Putin apologist. No one wants to be branded a traitor. No one wants to be branded someone who's being used as a tool of Russian propaganda and all these things that have been introduced into our discourse around disinformation and so on and so forth after the, the Russiagate situation that happened after the 2016 election. And so that creates a very dangerous void when the only people who have the loud megaphone are the people who are basically saying we need to either A, risk nuclear war or B, basically have a nuclear war and let what happens, happens. And I think it does speak to 
the sort of terminal nature of imperialism and capitalism where it is right now. I mean, you can see from the issues of climate change, we can see from the issues of poverty, we can see to some degree from the issues of, of nuclear war, that capitalism in many ways is at a cul-de-sac. Increasingly, the needs of people, people's needs, are at odds with the goals of total and complete profit-seeking. And that's what capitalism is seeking profit over and above all things, especially the lives of human beings. And so capitalism and imperialism is becoming more and more bellicose, more and more desperate and more and more lashing out to do whatever it possibly can to hang on and to make sure it isn't displaced by reason and logic, which would show that this entire system is leading us in a way. I mean, we're facing the existential destruction of the planet uh, due to climate change, and not one major capitalist government on Earth is committing significant resources to address that, even though they all admit that this is an existential crisis that could destroy all of humanity. And so when you are that blinkered and that single-minded and that focused on the fact that profit is more important than every other thing, and that ultimately many, many reasonable people will see that that doesn't really make a lot of sense, you know that you have to go to extreme lengths to maintain your position and to not be displaced by the masses of people waking up and realizing, well, wait a second, we can't continue to go on this way. And you, that means that you have a growing number of people who are willing to say things like, we should use nuclear weapons to make sure Russia can't quote unquote challenge the United States. And I think it's dangerous when there's no one in the political and public sphere to speak back, which means that the average person, now we have a greater responsibility as a collective to speak out and to speak up, if you think this is wrong at least, because certainly I think in the media and the political sphere, we see that they're all captured and cowed. Yeah, that's the thing about a witch hunt. You have to watch your words. You have to make sure you're not with the witches. Mm -hmm. You have to denounce the witches or perhaps you're a witch. Mm -hmm. It's the logic of a witch hunt. And and again, a lot of people, including people in the ruling class, probably know that this is folly, that this hubris, this arrogance could lead to great disaster. None of them want to, you know, take a chance. Kissinger is so revered, and also he's 98 years old, so his career is not about to take off, so yeah. to speak. <laughs> uh, so he can say these cautionary words, but again, he's being ridiculed, and nobody wants to be ridiculed. These bourgeois figures don't want to be ridiculed in the media. So this is the toxic mix. And, you know, you're talking about climate change. You look at what happened in, in Buffalo last week, another racist massacre, the massacre of children in Texas. You know, when you think about what's happening inside the United States, COVID deaths hit a million, constant gun violence, mass shootings, bridges are crumbling. And, and the richest country in the world, it's got this kind of failure written all over it. But the one place where Congress unites, the one place where the political elites unite, the one place where the media unites in America is around war. And, you know, capitalism is a global system, yes, but this is a particular capitalist country. It's particular. It's distinctive. Its evolution has been distinctive. And it is a capitalism that is, in fact, completely addicted to militarism and war. Obama demanded that the European countries increase their, their military spending to 2% of their GNP. Then Trump said, if you don't do it, if you don't live up to the thing that Obama demanded from you, we're gonna cut you off. And then Trump is denounced by the media for like maybe dissolving NATO or, or besmirching NATO's reputation when all he was trying to do is get them to do what Biden, what Obama also demanded, spend more and more. And the European capitalists really didn't wanna spend more. They didn't. But U.S. capitalism is a unique beast. 
It's a unique, distinctive beast. It's, the other capitalist countries have characteristic features like capitalism, maximizing profit, always the top priority. But this addiction to war and to militarism makes it noteworthy. And I think that is the real current danger in world politics to a third world war. Yeah, I, I think that that's 100% true. I mean, you can't keep saying that there's a danger of nuclear war and not recognize that if there is a danger that it could actually happen. And especially when the reality is, and there's certainly a concept in nuclear war called the escalation ladder, and as it's always said, it's easier to go up than it is to come down. And just the idea of brinkmanship can lead you to a situation where, again, you end up with these binary choices where someone launches a nuclear weapon. And so that's why it's important to recognize the exact causes and consequences of what's going on so that you can find some sort of other way, some sort of diplomatic road out. And it doesn't mean that everything is good or bad or indifferent or whatever it may be about those causes and consequences, but you can't just act like they don't exist. You can't look at them and say, well, we're just going to completely ignore that and think that you're going to avoid nuclear war. And I really do feel that this sort of World War III style mentality, and, and I think that's so much of like this mentioning of getting ready for nuclear war and that there's different ways. There's a new book that's out by Council for Foreign Relations fellow, the guy, he worked on the National Security Council under Trump, and I have now forgotten his name. There's a good article about this in the Monthly Review magazine that people can check out. But, you know, the whole premise of the book is that the U.S. should fight, be ready to fight Russia and China at the same time. But almost absurdly in the book, the guy is saying, well, we want to avoid war, but the only way to avoid war is to make sure that you show everyone else you can annihilate them completely and turn the globe into ash. And just the sort sort of sprinkling of these different little elements of it. We saw it in the 60s. We saw it in the 80s of this idea that, well, maybe you can win a nuclear war. Maybe there's a possibility that we can limit the fallout of a nuclear war. It might not be the horrible nuclear holocaust that everyone is talking about and so on and so forth. Just trying to seed that around in different areas of the population. And if not to say it explicitly, to trivialize it by saying talking about the danger of nuclear war is, again, some sort of Putin apologia or whatever it may be because you just are lacking the resolve to support Ukraine or whatever it may be, or to say, oh, well, that's far-fetched because all they're doing is giving weapons. They're not actually really bringing Ukraine into NATO and so on and so forth. That to trivialize it or to directly raise issues about whether or not it can be done, all of that starts to create the space by which a World War III can start. I mean, that's exactly how it happens. You have no one opposing the voices basically saying we should start one. You've got a mass media that is either trivializing or openly sort of questioning whether whether or not you nuclear war is either possible or whether or not it could be won without terrible catastrophic discussion. And that all starts to add up over time and it leaves you in a position where various dangerous things can happen. And sometimes not exactly because the people who started it even meant for that to happen. And I think that's the most important element of it is you can start somewhere and end up somewhere else just by the nature of how you make your choices. And then if anyone looks at history, that's always the case. I mean, when you think about and go through and do a survey of wars and how wars start, I mean, of course, in the current era, Lenin wrote that book in, in 1916, Imperialism, the Highest Age of Capitalism, where he says the current phase of world politics and the world economy is that the entire world has been divided up, been colonized by a handful of capitalist countries, and that competitive capitalism has been replaced by monopoly capitalism and bank capital dominates over industrial capital. It has these characteristic features, but bottom line is that the division of the world between the imperialists, as happened, say, in Africa at the Berlin Conference in 1884, where they took a map of Africa and the different European capitalists, and the U.S. was there as an observer, divided all of Africa up. And 18 years later, with the exception of Ethiopia, all African self-governance was gone. 
that era gave way to inter-imperialist war because the world had already been divided, so it could only be redivided because each of the capitalists continued to expand. Capitalism, you expand or you die. And so this expansionist characteristic of capitalism drives conflict. So Lenin wrote the book in 1916, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, where he outlines why war in this era is actually inevitable unless capitalism is replaced with socialism. That's the basic thesis. But I think that there's another element that we're playing with right now, which is not just system driven. It's how the U.S. policymakers have oriented what and how they view the U.S. role in the world. And I want to just, as we you know, go through this, yeah. Eugene, I know you are a journalist, activist, author, also a historian. You know, if you look at how U.S. empire evolved or the U.S. foreign policy, in 1823, there was the Monroe Doctrine. Now, the Monroe Doctrine basically states, it's misunderstood largely, but it basically states the U.S. new United States government is telling the Europeans, look, we're completely fine with the parts of the Western Hemisphere you've already colonized, but you can't keep colonizing. From now on, it's going to be our backyard. Okay, that's 1823. That was hemispheric and basically a defensive posture. In 1898, the U.S. invades Cuba, it invades Puerto Rico, it invades the Philippines, and the Secretary of State at that time, John Hayes, writes a document called the Open Door Notes. And that's where the U.S. emerges from a hemispheric or regional power with global aspirations. So now the United States wants to get to China. It wants to compete with the Europeans who have already you know, sliced up China. The United States wants to be a world power, but it's not the world power. Then you get to the next really important moment, which is the end of World War II, 1943 to 1945. You look, the U.S. tried to, as a new world power, tried to create a new world order. And the new world order was based on the creation of IMF, World Bank, United Nations, and Bretton Woods, where the dollar is the world's reserve currency. But the most important thing is all the capitalist countries are united as junior partners to U.S. imperialism. And the plans for the U.S. world order, where the U.S. would be completely dominant, are upset, overturned, because of the existence of the newly formed socialist camp, the revolutions that happened after World War II. All right. That era goes from 1945 to 1991. In 1991, the Soviet Union has collapsed. The socialist camp is gone. And now we're in this new, the third stage of what I would describe as how the U.S. is presenting itself as a world power. So the first one is 1899, open door notes, the invasion of Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, World War II, the creation of a world order that's upset by the Soviet Union. And finally, step three, stage three, all rivals are gone. And now the U.S. has redefined its place in the world as the global unipolar hegemon. And this is what has driven U.S. policy. This is why Henry Kissinger is now a lone dove, because of this reorientation of U.S. policy. No, I think that's a very good point. I think the dissolution of the Soviet Union is an important issue, because at the end of the first Bush administration, when the negotiations were going on regarding the removal of Soviet troops from Germany, the reunification of Germany, there's a very robust discussion inside the Bush administration about how the U.S. should expand NATO eastward, that it should try to, as they framed it at the time, get in between Germany and Russia, and that doing that would allow the U.S. to organize the region. And so that ultimately, 
that, yes, they should try to use NATO in such a way to control Europe, basically. That's the bottom line. But they decide to pull back because they say, and this is being you know discussed at the highest levels, and you can read the whole history in my article, Is NATO to Blame? But you know they basically are saying, well, wait a second. We actually can't go forward with this because the issue of moving NATO eastward is so dangerous and so fraught that this will cause the Soviets to go back on the agreements that we have made vis-a-vis withdrawing from Eastern Europe, dissolving the Warsaw Pact. And since this was a great strategic victory for the United States, that they couldn't do anything. So the Soviets, the Soviet Union is still there, but on the way out. On the way out. And so basically that they couldn't do anything that could potentially give the forces in the Soviet Union that thought maybe this was a mistake, the ability to then push Soviet policy in a different way and to start to roll back the strategic victory for U.S. imperialism that the Gorbachev administration had delivered. So they said, no, can't do it. It's too fraught. But I think that in and of itself is very important because as early as the late 80s up to 1990, they knew, well, if we go any further east, and this is east of Germany now, that this could actually be extraordinarily dangerous vis-a-vis what people in the Soviet Union at that time, but certainly at Russia later would think. So been known for a very long time. But then the dissolution of the Soviet Union changes everything. And then inside of the National Security Council, inside of the State Department, and inside the Department of Defense, all the discussion then becomes about how to best move NATO eastward. How can they do this? And what they were talking about in the big sort of context they were discussing, and this is very important, is that the biggest danger is if the U.S. didn't move NATO eastward, that the Western Euro- the two main Western European countries, and it's important to remember now that the EU, we know the EU now, that was there was no EU then, but it was starting to come together. And so the fear was that France and Germany, as they pushed this agenda that was primarily their agenda of bringing Europe closer together, would seek a relationship with Russia that, of course, they already had an economic relationship. It was probably going to be, a, it was natural and would undoubtedly grow. That their they would neighbors. Also, their neighbors. That they would seek a security element to that relationship as well, have a sort of unified security, and that that would displace America as a European power. And, and this is notable, reduce the support in the U.S. population for U.S. troops to be in Europe. So that ultimately, without NATO expanding eastward, that this was terrible for the United States because Europe would make its own decisions, that if they made their own decisions, they would be most likely to try to have a peaceful relationship with Russia, that the U.S. military role in Europe would no longer really be necessary, and that would mean that the U.S. wouldn't be able to totally dominate the globe because, you know, Europe, Western Europe, is the other major center of capitalism, and obviously this would create a European Russian condominium that then could make their own decisions about a lot of things, as opposed to how Western Europe had been in the era after World War II, which was totally subordinated to U.S. policy, which is the essence of the so-called Euro-Atlantic alliance, is that Europe is essentially an adjunct to U.S. policy. And so you can see from the very beginning, this is the basis of it. And you can see in the defense policy guidance that comes out in 92, which was sort of the cleaned up version of the infamous Wolfowitz Doctrine, that they say specifically that their goal for Russia and even though they use some pretty phrases about partnership, was to demilitarize Russia, was to reduce its military industry, was basically to make sure that Russia was domesticated, for lack of a better term, and that the only basis for partnership between the U.S. and Russia was Russia giving up any pretensions it may or may not have to be a major power that's deciding things on the world stage, and certainly to make sure that they didn't think that they could somehow be equal to the United States. And so this comes out in 1992, 
and it becomes the overarching thing, really till today. I mean, there's pretty much, there's a lot of different words and a lot of different phrasing, but really from that 1992 defense policy guidance on to now in 2022, there's been the same basic reality every national defense strategy of the United States, which is that the most important thing is to prevent rivals from emerging. And that's why when we talk about the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which everyone talks about, and it's important for people to know the history of this, the Wolfowitz Doctrine is only known to us because it was leaked to the New York Times by someone inside the administration who thought it was so outrageous that people had to know. And the language is not cleaned up in the Wolfowitz Doctrine. And it says explicitly that the United States has to do everything possible to prevent the rise of any power that could challenge the U.S. unipolar control over the world, and that Western Europe was particularly important because of the economic role of Western Europe. Now, so of course, this went over very badly in America and around the world, so they cleaned it up and they put out this defense policy guidance. Dick Cheney played a role in helping to clean that up. But the essence of it is exactly the same in terms of what the basic goal of the U.S. military was going to be, and that's to maintain the so-called rules-based international order where the U.S. makes all the rules and everyone else just has to follow. I want to read a little bit from the defense policy guidance. This is the cleaned up version of the Wolfowitz Doctrine. It's after it's been leaked to the New York Times. It was called a white paper at Mm -hmm. that time. And then the Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, the first Bush administration, said, no, 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 that's just a a document that we were thinking about. But no, it's the document. And and I want to read some words, and I think we can put them up on the screen for for our audience, but I'll read it. Our first objective is to prevent the reemergence of a new rival. This is a dominant consideration underlying the new regional defense strategy and requires that we endeavor to prevent any hostile power from dominating a region whose resources would, under consolidated control, be sufficient to generate global power. These regions include Western Europe, East Asia, the territory of the former Soviet Union, and Southwest Asia. There are three additional aspects to this objective. First, The U.S. must show the leadership necessary to establish and protect a new order that holds the promise of convincing potential competitors that they need not aspire to a greater role or pursue a more aggressive posture to protect their legitimate interests. So they're legitimate. Second, in the non-defense areas, we must account sufficiently for the interests of the advanced industrial nations, that's Europe again, to discourage them from challenging our leadership or seeking to overturn the established political and economic order. Finally, we must maintain the mechanisms for deterring potential competitors from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. So guess what, China? You don't even have the right to aspire to being a regional power, even though you're China. Guess what, Russia? You can't even aspire to being a regional power in the areas around your country. And the same with Germany and France. What we've seen, Eugene, in the last couple months with the outbreak of the Ukraine war is the ushering in of a new era. But it's not a new era in the sense that uh, the United States has changed any of the logic or reasoning. What's actually happened is Russia finally said, Look, this is unacceptable to us. Under the pretext or pretense or explanation or rationale of preventing us from being a a regional power, you are becoming the regional power around us. 
You are containing us. And as you put it, I thought so well in an earlier episode, containment doesn't necessarily mean stopping someone's expansion. Containment can mean putting someone in a container where they literally can't move and where they're literally thus defenseless. I mean, I think it's so important for people to understand these words. These, these are the cleaned up words, as you put it. But those are pretty powerful words, and it means a lot to Russia and to China. No, I mean, I think it's 100% clear when you look at it. And I think people, I urge people to just continue to read. I mean, even you read the most recent national defense strategy from 2018. They've got a new one that's coming out this year in 2021, but it'll be relatively similar. And they even, they do things like they refer to Russia and China as revisionist powers. And I don't even know what that means. I mean, I guess it means revisionist in relationship to the rules-based international order, where the U.S. makes all the rules. But but the entire thing is sort of structured around like, well, these are basically evil countries that are against everything that America's for. And we have to make sure that America controls all the rules. You can see that with Biden's trip to Asia in the context of this new Indo-Pacific economic framework, where the entire basis of it is to make sure that the United States and its allies are able to write the rules of the road so that the U.S. and what they're saying is vis-a-vis -vis China should be able to determine for Asian countries what the rules are on a number of critical things. And now, of course, these countries don't have to sign up to this. But obviously, if they're in a negotiation with the United States, which is the world's most powerful country, they're going to be put on the hot seat to agree to the American perspective on these things, which means that even though it's the U.S. and their allies, anyone who's really fooled by that, I, you know, I got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. It's obviously the United States states wanting to be able to say, this is what's going to happen in Asia. This is who's going to be able to do it. And ultimately, you need to isolate yourself from China, which ultimately means for countries of Asia, you're cutting your own throat economically so that you must remain stunted and undeveloped with your people living in poverty and not take the most obvious opportunity to improve the economic situation of your country. Not that every country in Asia is trying to do that, but be that as it may, that you just can't do any of that because the U.S. is against it. And I think that this is what's clear in the words. It's what's clear in the act. I mean, you can see very clearly that the one thing that brings the most negativity on you from the United States is going against what the United States wants in a particular region. They don't care about anything else. They always dress it up as human rights, but you can be the world's worst human rights abuser, Israel, Saudi Arabia, all these countries, and everything's fine. I mean, they say, we got to go after China because they have forced labor in Xinjiang. Let's put that issue aside. The entire Gulf is based on massive forced labor. Though in American foreign policy saying, let's sanction these countries, let's destroy these countries, they're saying, let's take their money, look at Mnuchin and Kushner taking billions of dollars from the Saudis and put our military troops there because they're the good bad people. So the issues of human rights and all these other things, and who's America to talk about that, this is completely irrelevant. The one thing that you can say for absolute certain, how do you end up in the crosshairs of the United States? You go against what they think should be happening in any particular region. And that's what these documents have laid out over time. That's the overall basis of what's happening. And that is the logic behind all of these individuals who want to drive an increased war with Russia and an increased war with China, that they are very, very dangerous because they have the wherewithal to create space, not just for themselves, but for other nations working with them to have a more independent, sovereign, self-determining reality. Yeah, Russia and China are too big to be forced into a neo-colonial status. And unlike the European capitalist countries who were basically resuscitated from catastrophe by the U.S. at the end of World War II, both with the Marshall Plan and then with the creation of NATO and the securing or fastening of these countries to the United States as junior partners where the U.S. gave them access to the world market, but under the condition on which that they would be junior partners, they would be subservient. 
China and Russia are too big, too independent. That's not going to happen. And so as a consequence, they're being targeted. As we start to wrap up here, Eugene, I want to go to how how the relationship between the United States and Russia or the United States and Putin actually went south. Because, and it's so important what you were just saying, when the Russian government saw what the U.S. was planning to do with Syria, which is a principal Russian and previously Soviet ally in the Middle East, I mean, the Syrian army was basically constructed by the Soviet army, when they saw what the U.S. was going to do after the U.S. had destroyed the Gaddafi government in Libya in 2011, then all of the U.S. capitalists, again, saying, well, we're not going to let Libya be a regional power. We weren't going to let Iraq be a regional power. Now the next target is Syria, and then they were going to go after Iran, of course, because that would be getting rid of all of the regional powers. Putin put his foot down and said no, and they moved the Russian military into Syria, And they basically stopped the U.S. from overthrowing the Assad government. It wasn't just the Russians. The Syrian Arab army, a mainly Sunni army, basically, stuck together in the main. It fought ISIS in the main. It lost hundreds of thousands or 150,000 troops. So they played the major role. But it was the Russians, Hezbollah from Lebanon, Iranian militias. Together, they defeated the U.S. efforts to topple the Syrian government. That's when the U.S. really decides Putin is a monster. It's because when Russia under Putin started to contest this basic framework that was established in the 1992 defense guidance policy, the Wolfowitz Doctrine, that someone was going to contest the U.S. ability to carry out absolute regional hegemony everywhere that Russia goes into the doghouse. Mm -hmm. And then a few months later, the Maidan protests start in Ukraine. The U.S. is backing them. The U.S. overthrows a principal not an ally of Russia, but the Yanukovych government, you know, said that Ukraine would always be neutral. Mm -hmm. The U.S. topples that government. So then I want to bring up Syria, Eugene, because at the very end, this is, I think, an important dynamic in American politics, again, going back to the role of the military and militarism. In the end, when Obama, the Obama administration realized that they couldn't win in Syria, John Kerry went and started meeting with Lavrov, And after a lot of negotiations, they came to an agreement for a ceasefire and an end to the war in Syria. And the Pentagon at that time, I don't know if you remember this, but the Pentagon actually said openly, this is under the Obama administration, the Pentagon said, we don't agree with the ceasefire, like the completely insubordinate to civilian leadership. And two days after the agreement was signed, which was September 9th, 2016, two days after the Pentagon says, we don't like this agreement, The Pentagon, the U.S. Air Force, dropped huge bombs on more than 100 Syrian soldiers who were fighting ISIS at the time. They were in fixed positions. It wasn't a mistake. And by doing that, it ended the ceasefire. The reason I'm saying this is that even when there was a politician like Obama, maybe, or Kerry, who had some restraint, said, no, let's, okay, enough of the war in Syria or enough of this war or that war. There's another element of the U.S. establishment, the Pentagon in particular, that says, no, We're not going to allow the war to end. And that's what's going on in Ukraine. Henry Kissinger, a lone voice. But there are no other voices, as you mentioned. And if there were, the Pentagon would make sure to make short shrift of them. 
Well, I think that's certainly true. I mean, you know, if you look at the role of, you know, various ex and current generals and, you know, many of the articles that were in books that have been written, you know, during the Trump administration, I mean, the main role of most of these people was to try to make sure that Trump didn't do anything that would deviate from the imperialist consensus around NATO, around confronting Russia, around confronting China, all these, well, he have was willing to confront China. Have a peace treaty with North Korea. Have a peace treaty with North Korea. They were doing everything possible to sabotage it, his own officials. And I think that that's a notable factor that many of these people, the whole reason they had supported Hillary Clinton in 2016, Robert Kagan, other neocons like that, they were talking about it openly, was because they weren't sure they could actually trust Trump to stay on this runaway train for U.S. unipolar imperialism. And that, like, you know, many people in certainly this country and around the world, they might think that, well, maybe we don't need to do all of these various different things. And I think ultimately, I think that what we have seen contemporarily, you know, going back some time, but certainly in this recent era, and especially with the rise of all these former generals that go on TV and things like that, who are just blatantly telling lies oftentimes in terms of how they try to shape the political sphere. I think that is a very important factor in the entire thing in terms of shaping the broader consciousness of Americans as well. I mean, I, I saw something, you know, relatively recently, I think it was ABC News, I can't remember exactly who it was, where they were saying they didn't even hold the generals they brought on as commentators to the same factual standards that they held their own anchors to. I think it was ABC News. Someone can look that up, but it was one of them. And I was just astonished to see that. I mean, I wasn't that surprised, I guess, but I was still astonished because I was like, wow, well, they said the quiet part out loud there. But you see, you have this massive industry of these people who leave the Pentagon. They go to MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. They're writing books. They're doing all these things. And it's all designed to make sure that the interpretation that's given about all of these issues is this U.S. imperialist interpretation. And so I think that without a doubt, not only would we see it, we already do see it. And that they really do function in this role already as almost censors to make sure that they're really, because they're held up as the most, the number one experts on all these issues because they were in the military. The media treats them as the number one experts. They're held up in such a way that it is, they become almost the sole voice on quote unquote national security issues. And it really affects the broader conversation and the broader discourse and makes it much more difficult for any political figure to then stand up and say anything because then you're going against the tide, you're unloyal, your traitor issue, whatever you may be. But I do feel that there is, a, and it's ex-CIA people as well, other elements of the military, industrial intelligence, congressional complex that do all these different things. And I think that it's a dangerous situation where not only are there not voices against, but there's such an aggressive campaign to try to just, you know, slap down anybody who might say something considered to be untoward. My last point, Eugene, is that as we're documenting how things are getting more dangerous, which I 100% believe is happening, I think the whole logic of the Ukraine war is towards escalation, which means escalation between the U.S. and Russia, the two biggest nuclear powers. The United States is determined to win. Anybody who says compromise like Kissinger is thrown out. Russia is determined not to lose. So the logic there is escalation. The logic is escalation. Now, if the people of this country are able to kind of break free from the media domination and sort of think about it, and that's the purpose of alternative media, the U.S. did not win the war in Korea. Korea's a pretty small country. Yeah. There was a stalemate. The U.S. absolutely lost the war in Vietnam. The U.S. lost the war in Iraq. The U.S. lost the war in Afghanistan. The U.S. won the war in Yugoslavia by bombing the hell out of the country. Grenada. 
At one grenade, a country with a population of 250,000. So congratulations to the Pentagon on the overtaking of Grenada. Yep, Panama by destroying the entire working class neighborhoods. Yeah, and Panama, another tiny country. So the U.S. succeeded in a couple places, mainly a string of defeats. And now the U.S. policymakers are thinking like, yeah, let's get ready for war with Russia. Let's get ready for war with China. Our sanctions will destroy Russia. Well, the sanctions are hurting Russia, but Russia has relations with China. It has relations with India. It even is expanding its trade with Thailand. I mean, it's not true that the United States has the capacity to bring countries like Russia to its knees or China to its knees. So the whole logic is towards escalation. And I believe the thing, the biggest restraint will be the, the people of the United States, because as you said in the beginning of the show, or towards the beginning, when the people are actually asked, what about war with Russia? There's like giant concern. Just think if the U.S. starts to send thousands and thousands of troops to Ukraine, which might start. I believe the people of this country, under those circumstances, will become the powerful force against war. And I think for the left, for the progressive movement, for the anti-war movement, we have to keep analyzing this, assessing this, pointing out the danger, sounding the alarms, trying to reach our fellow workers or fellow students, explain NATO, why NATO is to blame for the crisis, and at the same time recognize that if the imperialists keep making these kind of mistakes, lead towards escalation, towards a wider war, the masses of people will come into this process in opposition to imperialism because it's so insane, it's so crazy. And again, we have to sort of look at this not as disinterested people on the sidelines critiquing it or you know being filled with gloom and doom or fear, even though it's pretty dangerous, but to recognize this is going to be a big struggle. Yeah, I think that's a very true, but I think that we can certainly look to history. I mean, you can look to all of history, but you know, even just this very topic. I mean, you think about the one restraining factor. I mean, we talked about the evolution of this, you know, neocon unipolar thing with you know Carter coming in and then going to Reagan. Well, what did become the most restraining role at the end of the seventies and the early eighties that did start to affect the political circumstance? The action of people. The nineteen seventy nine anti draft movement against the possibility of bringing back the draft. Million people on the streets of New York City in nineteen eighty two against nuclear war. Ron Dellums and others leading the fight against the B-1 bomber. What was the death knell of Star Wars? Why did the, you know, not the movie Star Wars for people who don't know, but this, you know, crazy anti-missile system, the massive opposition in the United States, these sorts of things. What's the real essence of the Iran-Contra scandal? Well, they had to start doing it secretly because there was so much opposition to the U.S. involvement in Central America. There was no way they could actually go through normal channels. They had to break the law to carry out the policy they wanted to carry out. And then when they got caught, of course, that in and of itself also shaped the policies that the America was able to do. And so it's not to say that nothing bad happened in the 1980s or under Ronald Reagan or whatever it may be, but that was a similar situation where at the end of the 70s and early 80s, you didn't really have any politicians majorly speaking out. You had the consensus being very much in a very different way, and you had a massive intervention of the people of the United States to really change the political discourse and landscape to create at least some block and at least some break on the possibility of the all-out war drive that was being pushed by 
the Reagan administration at that time. And I think now we can certainly look at examples like that. We can look at many other examples for various different struggles about how the masses of people have the ability to change history in their own favor. But I think this is a time that there aren't really any politicians that are going to speak up. No one in the media is going to speak up. So if you are one of these people who are as very or you know significantly concerned that there could be an actual nuclear war and a nuclear conflict and that we're headed down the wrong path, you are the only one, the collective you, that can actually be the voice that can make a difference on these issues. Yeah. And I know that you and I were actually both in front of the White House when Obama mm, was confronted yes. with that fateful decision, a wider war against Syria or not, when John Kerry and the others were saying that Assad had used chemical weapons. Public opinion in the UK, the House of Commons voted no to being a partner with Obama if he were to engage in war. The voices of the American people were being reflected in the streets. We were in the streets. Calls to Congress people were coming like 300 to 1 against any wider war. And Obama stepped back. Again, there are moments when grassroots political work, organizing, mobilizing, if it gets strong enough, if it's at the right time, the right place, it really makes the big difference. Anyway, we're going to leave it there. This is undoubtedly an unfolding drama, the danger of wider war, even nuclear war, very, very great. I want to encourage everyone to go to liberationnews.org, read Eugene's article, Is NATO Really to Blame? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Uh, Read to the end, though. Read to the end. Eugene Perrier, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.